Well, good morning. Uh, take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. My name's Colby. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. If this is your first time, I'd love an opportunity to meet you afterwards. Um, but we are in the middle of a series in the book of Romans. And so uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at nine short verses here in Romans and uh, continue our series gospel clarity as we work our way through the book of Romans here this year verse by verse so if you're there in Romans chapter 3 verse 1 I want to read the passage and hopefully you'll be able to follow along then with me verse 1 says this then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, do, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that not only would you grant us understanding, but the grace to receive it. Lord, even now as we prepare to think about what it says and to hear from you. Lord, we, we ask, God, that our hearts would be willing to hear what you want to say. Lord, I pray that you would grant us not an argumentative spirit, but an open and willing one. Lord, that even when you call us to face the reality of our sin and our deserved judgment, Lord, that we would also see your mercy, the kindness that leads us to repentance and hope in Jesus. So grant us grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but every now and then, uh, Annie comes into the kitchen and she's talking on the phone with someone else and I'm really interested in the conversation. But I'm at a real disadvantage, right? Because I only hear one side of the conversation. Recently, she was trying to schedule out uh, an important appointment for one of our kids uh, with, a, with a professional who was going to be helping with uh, some driving and some things like that. And, and it was getting hard to figure out how to get the scheduling. We've got a lot of things going on and figuring out. And I was hearing Annie's side of the conversation, and she was actually looking at me like, what should I do? But I didn't know what was going on because I wasn't, I wasn't hearing what was going on on the other side of the phone because then I would offer advice. You know, foolishly, I thought, I can help this situation out. I have no idea what's being said on the other side of the phone, but certainly I have insight into this. 
And so I would say something and she would be like, she would shake me off. Like, you don't hear what's going on over here. You can't speak into this, right? And we, you know, there I was in the middle of a conversation where I was only privy to sort of one side of what was going on. Well, that's exactly what's happening in this passage today. Paul is actually, he, he's using a rhetorical device called diatribe where he's speaking back to those who are arguing with them, only we don't know exactly what they're arguing about. We can only sort of understand it in terms of how Paul addresses it. And, and so there's this, obviously what's been going on is, if I can just catch you up, if you haven't been here the last few uh, weeks as we've been in Romans, and, and Paul is laying out the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, and he starts in a chapter, in a section that's really difficult. He starts with condemnation. He actually wants us to see that all of us deserve justice from God more than we deserve anything else. And he goes into a chapter where he just talks about the peoples of the world are really sinful and that they've not trusted and worshipped in God and, and they are under God's judgment. And all the Jewish people said, Amen. And then chapter 2. If you are here last week, he walks those self-righteous Jewish people through sort of a buzzsaw of arguments so that their mouths would also be stopped. And that kind of ends in, at the end of chapter 2 with him saying something incredibly bold, actually. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. This isn't just a matter of outward keeping of the law and happening to fall into a particular ethnicity. If you want to know what it's all about, a Jew is one inwardly in circumcision, a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Something they couldn't do, but only God could do by his indwelling Holy Spirit in them. Therefore, he said to them, it's possible for you to not be Jewish outwardly and really actually experience the gracious work of God inwardly and be a part of the people of God. Which was really significant to them because that made them confused. <laughs> About what advantage then does it have, is there in being Jewish? The true people of God were those, he said, who received his salvation as a gift through faith in Jesus because only in Jesus have our sins that we are clearly guilty of been paid for. And they were saying, Paul, are you saying that these Gentiles, this is, this is the problem. Remember, he's writing to people in Rome, and here's the issue. He's writing to a divided church in Rome. Jewish people who don't get Gentiles. Gentile people who don't get Jews. They don't understand their cultural reasonings. They have all kinds of arguments. There's a sense of disunity in the body. And, and Paul is actually going to unify them by condemning them. <laughs> and then unifying them by pointing that Jesus is their uniting Savior. In fact, if you've never realized this, as we continue through the book of Romans, it's a lengthy argument for unity in the body of Christ. And, and, and so he's got to work through all the problems. And he's saying, you know, Paul, are you saying these Gentiles that trust Jesus, who have not been circumcised and do not keep the Mosaic laws, are part of the true people of God? Are you saying that many of the Jewish people who have taken the sign of the covenant and circumcision and tried to keep the law but have rejected Jesus are not a part of the people of God? Yes, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, he's saying all of that was to point to a significant, more inward work necessary that Jesus alone would bring through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. 
Yes, that is the answer. In verse 1, then, of chapter 3, he sets it up perfectly. This is their response. Then what advantage is there in being Jewish? <laughs> if that's the case, what's the advantage? Now, before we dive into the text, Paul's answers are all intended to come to grips with the idea that Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek are both sinners and therefore in need of the same saving work through Christ. And that apart from God's gracious offer in Christ, they'll face judgment before God for their sins. That's the point of this section of Romans. They're all under a sense of judgment. All of us have sinned and and are genuinely guilty before God. This is what he's arguing. And so Paul wants to help them see their need for mercy and avoid foolish self-righteousness and worthless arguments before that day when they will stand before God and be judged. Literally for three weeks, chapter two, up till now, we've been dealing with sort of arguments we wouldn't want you to have when you stand before God in judgment. Ones you better work your way through so that your only plea is the song that we just sang is Christ. That Christ would be our only plea. This is what Paul wants them to understand. And so he's working patiently through their responses and the things that won't stand up on the day of judgment. So the whole argument is preparing for them to consider what will be true when God judges the world. He wants them to consider that. What's going to be true when God judges the world? Something that the Jewish people were confident that God would do, but wrongly believed would not be much of a problem for them. Now, I think it's important because, you know, if I think about it, I don't think that we take serious in our time, in our location, the reality of God's impending judgment in our life. That there's a day when we're going to give an account. In fact, we've dismissed it as foolish, but Jesus warned often that we should be concerned about the justice that our sin deserves. That we should be concerned about judgment. He said things like Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, this is Jesus On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I mean, that's Jesus warning us of judgment. The apostles warned of this coming day of judgment for all people. 2 Peter 3, 7, Peter, the the rock, the apostle says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, a symbol, symbol of judgment, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 is clear and says that it's appointed unto man to die once. And after that comes judgment. You know, the early church saw it so, as so important to keep in mind that their sins would be called upon by God for justice. That we would give an account to God that the earliest statements of faith, like the Nicene Creed, when confessing Jesus, read, He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. In 2 Peter, in that same chapter, chapter 3, warns that because of God's kind delay of judgment on the world, that many will pass the whole idea off as foolish. <laughs> Because God has been patient. Well, here we are. But in clarifying the gospel for both Jew and Gentile, Paul is helping us be ready for that day. That is his concern. 
and we should give it consideration. And he gives us three warnings through this conversation with the Jewish people about how we can be prepared. And three warnings that are here, and then in the end, we'll see one way that we can really be prepared when God judges the world. And so each of our points just kind of starts with that. When God judges the world, here's the first thing Paul shows us. He shows us that corporate advantages will not rescue us from personal sin. I'll say that again. When God judges the world, Paul is going to show us in this passage passage, that corporate collective advantages will not rescue us from personal sin. I want you to recognize the the tension then, the first point that Paul is dealing with. It starts really in verse 1. Look with me. Paul says, what? Responding to this gospel, what advantage is there to be Jewish then? He's sort of voicing the argument for his opponents. You're saying that both Jew and Gentile are under sin and the true fulfillment of the promises are those who trust Jesus by faith rather than those who have followed the sign of circumcision? Well, then what was the point of all that? You see the question? If, if now people can be the people of God regardless of whether they care about any of that because they've trusted God, Jesus by faith well what was the point of all that it seems like you're just dismissing that but Paul says he gives them an answer doesn't he he says it had a purpose look what it says much in every way there's lots of advantages worth considering even if it still means you're under sin to begin with he says the jews were entrusted with the oracles of god now what is he trying to say he says they were entrusted with the words of god that that this was a significant advantage for them over other people it was a privilege he said that word entrust here points to what the privilege and its assignment really were. The Jewish people were a repository. They were the place where these promises were kept, where God stored up the promises of his coming salvation. There was a familiarity about the sort of the, the shape and in, in the character of God and what he had promised for the world. And Jewish people understood that and they had the advantage of knowing that. But he also says that, that it was a trust. That they had been entrusted with these words. Notice he says these, he calls them oracles here. He uses the term oracles because in a sense, it was a way of saying God had acted directly with you in a way that no other people had experienced. That you had the privilege of all of the advantages of following God's way. So they were given a trust, though, he says. You know, if you understand the Old Testament, we realize that when we entrust something to someone, we don't just give it to them for themselves. It's given to them to be held in trust for a future time when something else will be done with it. And so God is really saying here in this passage that the the Israelite people had been entrusted with these words so that they could actually give that gospel to the nations. And now the time had come. You see, this is the argument Paul has been saying all along. You were entrusted with these words, with these promises, with this hope that all the nations would be blessed through the promises delivered through you. Not so that you could find yourself privileged and at a special advantage when you're ignoring God. Your corporate advantage of having the oracles of God does not rescue you from personal sin, but positions you to know how merciful God is. In sending Jesus. 
So this really becomes even more clear in verse 9 when he presses in to a similar question to summarize all that he has said here. Jump down to verse 9 and see what he says. As, he, as he's dealt now that there are advantages, he, goes, he, he gets into the specific question that he's been talking about all along. What then are we Jews any better off? <laughs> oh, that's just our sign. You, it fell apart. You set things up, tear them down every week, things fall over. But it was for emphasis. You guys were really supposed to... I was obviously supposed to get your attention a little better. See what's going on in verse 9. It's one thing to have an advantage, but when it comes to your sin and your responsibility to God, are you any better off for having those advantages? And the answer is no, not at all. You're You're not any better off because you had the advantages. You're still responsible to God for the decisions that you have made. And so he's kind of summarized. Yeah, there's advantages, but, but it doesn't relieve you personally of your responsibility to God for your sin and your need for him. You see, corporate advantages will not rescue us from personal sin. Some of you may, maybe remember the name Michael Fay. Anybody in the house? You're gonna, some, if you're 40, you're going to remember the story. When I was in high school, this story of Michael Fay broke into the news in 1994. He was an American teenager who had committed 50 counts of vandalism in Singapore. And he had been, he had been uh, convicted of those accounts and sentenced to six months in prison and six canings. Six whips of the cane. And I can remember at that time, the debate in the U.S. was, you know, all about whether this was okay. Like, what's going to happen, you know? Well, certainly, he shouldn't have to go through with that. He's an American, right? Somehow, belonging to this corporate identity would confer some advantage in a place where he was guilty of breaking the law. <laughs> he had gone into another country, broken their laws, and he was guilty. And guess what? American diplomacy couldn't save him from his four reduced sentence canings. It was fascinating because, you know, he was 16 at the time. I think I was 14. And, you know, there's just all this discussion about it. But what we realized, he ended up getting the canings. And you can read about it all on the internet and what happens to his life. He now runs a casino. Uh, I, I looked it up this week. He seems to be doing just fine. I got to be honest. But his corporate identity as American couldn't save him from his guilt before the court in Singapore. He had actually broken the law and was sentenced to the crime that had been attached to that law. And in many ways, this is a sense of what what Paul is saying here. You could say, well, isn't there any advantage to being American? Well, there's lots of them, but it won't get you out of court in Singapore. Isn't there any advantages to being Jewish? Well, yeah, there's lots of them, but it won't get, get you out of court the day that you stand before God and have to give an account for your sin. And I just want to say, if that's true for them, it's true for us. No matter any identity you embody, any sense of corporate advantage you feel that you have, it's going to be worthless on the day of judgment when we're called upon to give an account for our sin. That's the first thing he says, corporate advantages will not rescue us from personal sin. But as we move into verse 3, we learn that when God judges the world, consistent rejection will not reveal God's unfaithfulness but your own. I'm going to say that again, nice and slow for you note takers, all right? Listen, consistent, he said, when God judges the world, consistent rejection 
will not reveal God's unfaithfulness, but your own. You see, in verse 3, Paul gets to the heart of a Jewish argument that he was often encountering. Well, you know, it goes something like this. They just heard they're you know, guilty before God. Well, Paul, the wrongness of your gospel is that it shows God to be a failure with his own people. If he chose a people and so many of us reject this son of his, then he is shown to be unreliable if he judges us. This is kind of their argument. We are the special people that, that, that certainly would know the truth if somebody was going to know it. But we've rejected, many of us have rejected Jesus. So doesn't that just say that God's not very good at his job? This is the kind of accusation that Paul was dealing with from Jewish people as he traveled and preached the gospel. This is what Paul is getting to the heart of dealing with when he says, if some were unfaithful, you see that there? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Let me simplify. Does your rejection of God say something about God or something about you? Does our sin against God say something about God or something about us? That's at the heart of what's going on here. Somehow these Jewish people believed that because they had voted against or some amount of the voting block had voted against Jesus and his gospel, that it said something about God and his character. Now, there's a lot of problems with that argument, obviously. But Paul insists in his answer that it's foolish to put forth the idea that somehow God's character is on the line by the vote of sinners. And you may think, oh, well, that, that seems like a foolish argument for these Jewish people to make, but it's an it's a, it's a argument that is probably incredibly relevant for us to consider today. You know, much of the way that we experience pluralism uh, really kind of amounts to an argument like this. On one level, there is a pluralism. People believe lots of things about God, don't they? Pluralism as a reality is a general observation. People have lots of beliefs about God. But then there's sort of philosophical pluralism that says pretty much every belief is valid. <laughs> the plurality of those beliefs are valid for whoever makes them. And therefore, whatever we vote about God is really what matters. What I've decided about God somehow changes what is true about him. That, that if I come up, if I don't like things about what God is saying about my sin, somehow I can just sort of say, well, I don't, I don't really care about that. And it changes God and God's affected by it. Do you hear how foolish that is, though, when it, in reality? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of pride and arrogance for us to think that what we as an individual or some corporate grouping would say about God changes anything about him when he is the one who has created us and not us having created him. You see, specifically here, he is, he's kind of trying to whittle away at this idea. The beginning of verse 4 is an emphatic response to the idea uh, uh, of whether this could be true. By no means may it never be that we judge God by the response of sinners to his gospel. This emphatic statement here in verse 4 is, is a Greek word that is kind of hard to uh, translate. The word is meganoita, but it, it just really means by no means, no way. It's like an exclamation. 
Like, this is an awful idea that God would somehow be subject to our opinions of him. And so he goes in here. He says this is, a, this is in essence a way of saying, he makes this next statement after that emphatic statement, this exclamation, let God be true even if everyone were a liar. And so, so he says, you know, he rejects this idea and says, God isn't going to be changed even if every one of us rejected him. He wouldn't be unfaithful for punishing sin. He would actually be faithful for following through with his justice. And so what he's saying is, you know, we got it all confused. We're the lawbreakers. We're the ones who have rejected God's instruction. He's the creator. And so God would be faithful in condemning us in no special category, Jew or Gentile, means we get a vote about that opinion. Only that we must ask, what can we do if we find ourselves guilty? Listen, our lies about God, our rejection of him, only prove that he is not unjust when he judges our sin. So Paul, what are you saying? Paul, what you're saying, listen, is that, you know, here's the people reasoning with him, is that our rejection of God only further vindicates God's condemnation of us? It shows that we're really sinners? Yes. It only shows more clearly that God is in the right when he judges? This is what he's saying. He, said, he says it by quoting Psalm 51. Maybe in your Bible it's set apart. And it's the words that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The, the, it, sometimes it's hard to tell. Who's he talking about there? Well, actually, Paul is quoting that as the psalmist, David, says it about God. He says that, God, you will be righteous if you condemn me for my sin because I am a sinner. He confesses to his sin and he agrees with God that because he's been a sinner, that in fact God is right in justifying his condemnation. So, so this is the argument Paul's making. He, he's actually saying that, that in this, if God is faithful in his justice, it shows more clearly that God is the right when he judges as people act out and reject him. It only shows all the more that God was right about them. And so this is the argument that's going on. In fact, if you think about it for a second, let's just zoom out. The rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel serves as a special function in the, in the Bible. The people are, of Israel are like a magnifying glass for what would happen with all of us if we had their advantages. You know, because it's easy. We said before, you know, maybe I can plead ignorance or, God, if you would have given me these advantages, this is what would have happened. But God gives all of these advantages to the Jewish people, but they reject him. He continues to reveal himself and be patient with them, but they reject him. And they're like a petri dish of the rest of the world with all of these advantages in. It's being highlighted that God's condemnation of all of us under sin is actually just. And God's character of righteousness is being put on display as it's being played out that we're sinful and in need of something more than just information. Because the argument of the Bible is that you didn't just need more information about God, that you were willing to reject God so that you could go on in your own sin. Now, I know this is technical. In fact, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century uh, British preacher, claimed that this passage was the hardest, most difficult passage to understand in the book of Romans. But y'all are doing good so far. So just keep on up. You got some, some head nodding, you know, maybe some... 
some wondering. But listen, we're, we're kind of almost out of the woods here, but I, I want you to see clearly how careful we must be not to put ourselves in the position of judge. You see, the, the people of Israel's sin shows the mercy and grace of God even more for all of us that he would grant rebels like us a way to be redeemed. What's amazing is God, that God offers redemption in Christ and fulfilled his purpose even as we have walked away from him. And so Paul's opponents, we could imagine them saying something like, fair enough, Paul, our rejection doesn't render God unfaithful. It actually makes his faithfulness all the more clear and shows that he was right. So they move to a third set of questions that help us see what happens, what we need to understand when God judges the world. When God judges the world, number three, crafty arguments will not be recognized as anything but slander. So we've kind of gone through this a little bit of an argument. Let me just kind of keep us, keep us on track here. Uh, Paul, what, what advantages are they? Well, you've been entrusted with God's word so that you might see clearly. God has given you this advantage to know him, but you're still responsible for your sin. Oh, but Paul, I mean, if this gospel were really true, don't you think most of us Jewish people would be in favor of it instead of rejecting it? Well, all that's really happening is God is being proved faithful as what he said about us is being played out. Okay, okay, but you just said, Paul, that, uh, that somehow that shows God's righteousness. And now, because of our sin, God's righteousness is more on, on display. So, here's a crafty argument that surely God will recognize on the day of judgment. But Paul really is arguing back at them. Crafty arguments will not be recognized as anything but slander. Let's look at the argument that they make next in verse 5. Now listen, Paul is brilliant here, but you're going to have to hang on and pay close attention. Here is what Paul's opponents argue next. In the text, look at it. This new argument is seen in verse 5. It's sort of like this. If our rejection only further vindicates God, then he surely can't condemn us for something that brings him glory. Kind of like the sovereignty of God argument. Surely God can't condemn us if he's going to get glory out of it anyway. Specifically, if he says it this way, if our unrighteousness, verse 5, serves to show the, unright show the righteousness of God, then he's unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. <laughs> if what we've done is just a part of serving to show that God was right all along, then he can't turn that around and inflict judgment on us. We've got you now, Paul. Now, now, all of us are kind of scratching our heads a little bit, right? This is a crafty little argument and word game, but is God going to really, is this going to work on the day of judgment? Well, Paul has a response. Paul now points out the absurdity of their mental gymnastics. Now, before looking specifically at Paul's reasoning, that weird line of reasoning fails to recognize that God's sovereign ability to use our failure for his glory speaks to something amazing about him and speaks nothing about us. It doesn't relieve us from our responsibility for the sin itself. But here's how Paul responds. Two problems, friends, who are arguing with him. The first one is this. If you're going to take that view, you can't now condemn me for what you call this lie about Jesus. Look what, look what he says actually here in verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Now, when you read that, you know, he's, it's again, we're in this spot where we're on the other side of the phone. 
Okay, he's having this conversation and Paul's speaking in. What Paul is actually arguing here is he's saying, you guys have said that I'm lying about God. And if you're going to argue that God uses, you know, you're going to argue that God uses that for his glory and therefore I can't be punished, why are you condemning me? See how he flips it on them? He turns the argument around on them. He, he takes this argument and he says, on the basis of what you're saying, that if, if our sin causes God to be glorified and this lie would cause me to be sort of condemned before God, then if I'm bringing God glory with my lie, which sounds foolish, but under their rules, if I'm bringing God glory with my lie, then he can't condemn me also. And so you can't condemn me and we're all just stuck. This is what he's arguing. So, if you're going to take that view, you can't now condemn me for what you call this lie about Jesus because my lying would be included in your little argument and all the condemning you are doing of me would be meaningless. So you're the one making unreasonable claims. If you take that view, it ends up in the absurd place. This is what he's going to argue. He, this is the second way he shows it to be false. At the end then, after that, he says, if you take this view... This strange view that somehow because God can glorify himself even when we sin that we can't be condemned. If you take that view, it ends up in the absurd place of concluding we should just go on and do more sin in the future. Just go on doing evil so that God can be glorified by all of that. And Paul says that's just patently, patently absurd. It's a foolish idea that we should look to our future doing evil and if your argument leads to that, it should be rejected and what's what's going on here paul is wrestling deeply with his opponents here and at this point the crafty arguments they're using are absurd he says he's showing that they're absurd don't miss it listen when we refuse to acknowledge that we are sinners we plunge into absurdity rather than receive god's mercy many of you here are like i can't even trace out this crazy argument that they're making and it sounds ridiculous right well, in a sense, it is ridiculous. And Paul is just trying to show us how ridiculous it is. But there's, it tells us something important. That when our sin is brought before our eyes, we're more likely to make ridiculous arguments than find ourselves in a place of confession. Is there another way? Is there another way? Well, Paul sees another way right here in this passage. And he shows it to us. He says, reject the, I mean, these three things are foolish. Be careful. But when you're faced with your sin, what can you do? Find an argument to say God can't condemn me. Blame it on God and accuse him of being unfaithful, not providing enough for you, not making it easy enough, not giving you enough information. Here he's shown for two and a half chapters that the truth is, we all know already that we've rejected God. There's been many times in our life where we've disobeyed what we know to be good, what we know to be true. We also rightly know, he says, at the end of Romans chapter 1, that we're deserving of God's justice. And so often, we respond the way Paul's opponents respond. All sorts of arguments and evasions but is there another way? Well, how do we respond? Well, for both Jew and Gentile, Paul sees an example in the life of David, whom they respect, who we respect, and who he quoted right in the middle of this passage. 
How about clear-minded confession? How about deep agreement with God? How about putting ourselves before God's mercy and just seeing what happens? That's not how we usually respond to our sin, is it? But in Psalm 51, he quotes right here in the middle because what David does is the opposite of what the people arguing in the passage are doing. It says, verse 1 of Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And listen to what he says. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, Paul's alternative to arguing with God is to say, God, first and foremost, against you and you only have I sinned. I've sinned deeply against you. I know them. I know all of my transgressions, not just the ones other people know about. I know the ones that I don't even dare to speak of. We all have those, don't we? The ones that we silently are concerned about. David, here's the other way. I know those. My sin, the truth of it, is ever before me. Such a different attitude, isn't it? I mean, honestly, I've been weary for a chapter and a half now of the arguing. Isn't it refreshing to imagine just coming to God? Say, God, I'm going to stop arguing with you. You're right. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, if you judge me, you're going to be right. This is what confession sounds like. This is what receiving God's word when we're faced with the ugliness of our sin sounds like. It sounds like just saying, God, you'll be right if you judge me. Now, why does Paul want them to, want them to see that? Is it because he wants them to be left in a place of condemnation? No, actually he does it because he wants them to be unified around the fact that none of them are above each other in righteousness. He wants them to be united around the fact that they have only one hope. And it's in what Jesus Christ has done. And that God will be glorified and just both when he condemns Sinners who reject him. He will be right. He'll be exonerated. He'll be vindicated. And when he forgives sinners who have trusted the provision of Jesus. You see, this is the gospel. The gospel is that God is fully right and vindicated if he brings judgment and justice and wrath over our lives because of our sin. But he is also fully free because of Jesus' payment for our sin to grant us unrelenting mercy 
that right now, through just an honest coming to Jesus, when we finally say, I'm going to stop arguing, you're right, God, I'm guilty, I'm convicted, I deserve all of this, I can see it, I could testify to my own sins. But oh, I have hope. And it's a hope like I couldn't imagine I would have while I was arguing because you have granted mercy to sinners even when they don't deserve it. And all of a sudden, the ground at the cross becomes flat. And we receive absolute, undeserved grace in the gospel of Jesus. What would it do to a church if everybody believed that that was how they got into the people of God? What would it do to us as a people? Could it unite us when other things divide us? If we knew that it's more likely when somebody brings up our sin that they're right than that they're wrong. And that the best thing we could do is be quick to admit our sin so that we can experience in a sense of fullness the mercy of God that is promised to us in the gospel. We both need it to enter the door of salvation and we need that kind of clear-minded confession so that the gospel might deepen and grow in us and we become the kind of people of God that are not, that are not just a, an abomination before the nations, as he said, that, that don't cause the nations to blaspheme the name of God, but to see the power he has to transform when we finally stop fighting and we confess our sin and live in absolute transparent openness before God this is the hope we have so how do we respond we respond by affirming God's righteousness in his judgment and in his condemnation of our sin we respond by owning our personal offense toward God for our sin against you and you only have we have we sinned we respond by receiving the gospel of Jesus as our only plea and our only hope and we respond by unifying around our condemnation and our salvation and hope in Jesus. And I don't know about you, maybe, maybe you've been arguing with God and I just want to speak to you for a moment as we close. Maybe every time you hear about justice for sin, it just makes you cringe, you hate the idea. You run from it, you flee. You don't want to hear all that. But listen, is it possible God brought you here to hear these words and to see these words for a moment to realize that you could stop running from God and hiding and shoving your sin under the bed and and doing whatever you can do to avoid the light shining on it and that you could actually open it up to him and experience genuine forgiveness through Christ maybe God brought you here for that moment for today for you to finally stop stop running away and turn to him in repentance and by faith receive this promise that God grants salvation by grace I mean, what you'll find is that you'll finally be free. Free of trying to prop yourself up, free of being, making the arguments that you have, free of performing for everyone else and confident that you can be forgiven, received into the family of God because of what he has done and not because of what you've done. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me as we close in a time of prayer. We're going to prepare to sing. We're going to observe baptism this morning as we give this confession together. There's no Lord's Supper today as we get ready to celebrate baptism. I just want to pray for us as we close. And maybe you're there today and you would say, I need to, I need to stop hiding my sin and arguing with God. And I need to turn to Him for salvation that's you right now if that's you 
you would say, right where you're at, I know that God brought me here for this message. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one's looking around. I'm not going to ask anybody to come forward or anything like that, but I do want to be able to pray for you. I want to give you a chance. Maybe you need to just acknowledge it today and say, today I need to stop covering my sin and I need to turn to Christ by faith as my hope. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand where you're at? I want to be able to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. I need to take the first steps of faith today. Slip up your hand. Lord, I'm thankful today for these who have come and gathered. Lord, would you remind us today deeply that your gospel is our hope. It's our hope to unite us. It's our hope for freedom from condemnation. That we could know what Paul says, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, might we feel the depths and the goodness of it as we face that what we deserve in judgment is genuine condemnation because all have sinned and fallen short of your glory but lord you've brought us together not to not to just sit in our condemnation but to revel in your grace that you have lifted us up out of a miry pit and you've set our feet on a rock in christ and so lord we can trust and we can hope in him and so today lord we put our confidence in you as we seek to be clear-minded about our sin and confessional, and open, and allow you to do your saving work in us, deep in the heart, in Jesus' name, amen.